Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is, what is the job of a pastor? Which possibly should also be, what is not the job of a pastor? Of the infinity of good things to do, what is it exactly that a pastor should primarily be doing? Because that is what the church should be doing. So that's what we're going to be investigating today. As just a kind of a bona fides for why we're undertaking this particular topic. I presume, dear listener, that if you are listening at all, you are not one of the uh, kind of pastors or people who are um, fundamentally suspicious of theologians and assume that they are um, ivory tower idiots who have no idea what it's really like down in the trenches and have nothing of value to say to you. But just so you know, a little bit of our background, which you've probably gleaned. I am a pastor and I have been a pastor. I was calculating probably for a total of three and a half years out of my whole life now, both times part-time calls, and both times I would say highly unusual calls, the first one in a last gasp of Christendom urban Slovak American congregation in the uh, under 20 regular attendance, and now in the biggest city in the world in one of the least Christian countries in the world for an international congregation. So I'm certainly not claiming that my experience of a pastor is remotely representative, but I am a pastor and I have known a lot and seen a lot, and dad, so have you. You, I think, what do you have about? eight years full-time ministry in upstate New York, and then a whole lot of of, uh, part-time and vacancy calls that you've filled in over the years, right? Yeah, quite a bit, actually, I would say, yeah. And of course, you two know tons of pastors. Um, And so where we're coming from on this is not a sort of, um, look, here's how it is, and you have to do it our way um, sort of approach. So of course, you know us, we, we do have some tendencies in that direction. But really, we have just seen so many pastors taken out by the ministry. Uh, we've seen them crash and burn by their own bad choices and behavior. But we've also seen just a lot of pastors destroyed by the sheer burdensome of it, by evil congregations. Um, actually, as we were dad preparing uh, this morning and setting up the the studio to record, I said to Andrew, uh, my husband, what would you want to say on this topic about, you know, what is a job of a pastor? And he thought for a second and said, pastors should be prepared to be attacked by the devil. (laughs) (laughs) Like St. Sebastian, full of arrows, right? (laughs) Yeah, something like that. So, so uh, the yeah, so that's kind of where we're coming from. And Dad, you shared with me this article that I am obviously uh, touched a nerve with a lot of people. It was called "The Coming Pastoral Crash," and it is by a working pastor who was just observing that. Um, to to summarize, basically, pastors already mostly live unsustainable lives and unsustainable jobs as they understand them, and this COVID pandemic is going to exploit and reveal all of the cracks in the system, and it's going to be incredibly destructive on pastors. And that really made a lot of sense to me. So I think this seems like a particularly urgent topic because um, the ministry is a hard job anyway, but it seems to be even harder right now. Yeah, and I think, Sarah, there's a lot of um, vocational confusion within the ministry. Uh, What is a pastor supposed to be, an administrator, a volunteer organizer? a social justice community organizer, a CEO, a therapist, a deliverer of religious services on demand, a personal caregiver, chaplain to the most demanding, business innovator, program coordinator, fundraising, 
And shall we mention also mere preaching and sacraments? <laughs> That's a lot of jobs for one person to hold. It's impossible. And pastors get caught up in a, a whiplash, a, a crossfire of conflicting expectations in the congregation. There's a tendency among the type of personalities that go into the ministry anyway, a tendency to be people pleasers. And that can just be exhausting for a lot of contemporary pastors. Yeah, we've recently seen the uh, the uh, new uh, term, compassion fatigue. And uh, man, that that is dead on. You know, a lot of people do. They want to go into the ministry because they care about people. And, you know, you don't want a pastor who is cold as stone. That is not a good thing either. But right. if you're, you're, I think if your primary orientation is to take care of people, um, the ministry is going to destroy you. And there are better ways to channel that kind of compassionate tendency and probably a more structured structured sort of profession, you know, like nursing or actual therapy, where there are literal boundaries, like your 50 minutes are up, you have to go home now. But there's something about a pastor, even with the best of boundaries, that is more a, a limitless demand on your caregiving tendencies. Yeah. And I think, you know, one helpful reform in recent years has been the recognition of diaconal ministries of service and word and service which are probably aptitudinally better suited for people who primarily want to be caregivers in various dimensions of life. And the pastoral ministry, the ministry of word and sacrament, I think is something we want to distinguish from the church's ministry from the word in service to the world, which we'll get into, I think, as we talk about this. Yeah, maybe we'll take up the diaconate some other time, but I personally would be absolutely profligate in assigning and consecrating people to that office. I think there should be. <laughs> yeah, and years ago in upstate New York, when I was a full-time pastor there, and we recognized how the rural congregations were in trouble in terms of supporting pastoral ministries, we created in the conference and beyond a, a, a very good, still flourishing after 30 years of lay ministry, lay educa theological education program, which was oriented towards consecrating congregational deacons for various semi-official service in the church. Yeah, I remember that. That was really a, a huge hit. And here at, um, at Tokyo Lutheran Church, the just previous outgoing senior pastor introduced Stephen Ministry, which is basically training lay people to be pastoral caregivers, like in crisis situations, hospital visits, grief, and so forth. And, you know, the, the recognition um, was that um, they're just, the everybody wanted the pastor to be directly taking care of them at all times. And that just cannot happen, even in a small church like the Japanese church. But there are lots of very gifted people in the congregation who can be doing this care for each other, you know, and it's some kind of training is necessary and accountability, of course. Uh, we'll, we'll be taking up in the next episode what uh, congregation and lay people are to do. But I think that kind of clears the way for what we want to talk now about the pastoral office, which is not the diaconal service office primarily and not the personal caregiver office primarily. But dad, why don't you how you, you you often use this idea of from the word and to the word or from the sacraments and to the sacraments to distinguish congregational and pastoral office. So why don't you walk us through that idea of yours? Yeah, and I think let's just back up a little bit on that, on the cultural context in which we're discussing this, especially in Europe and America, where there has been such an uncritical infiltration 
of general notions of leadership from the surrounding culture, primarily today determined by the economy. Uh, in my, uh, my seminary days, the, uh, the general notion of leadership was the model of pastor as counselor. I'd like to tell a little anecdote about this. It continues in clinical pastoral education, which I understand is quite a bit better than it was in my day. But I was in seminary so indoctrinated with Rogerian psychology as the model. We were not to be directive and we were not to introduce God talk. We were simply to be present in such a way that enabled people to talk about their inner feelings. And of course, we were, with, even with the training we got, we were quite amateurish at this. But this was the model, and the most striking thing about it to me was that we were forbidden to use God talk. That was the term that of, in vogue in those days. No God talk, because that just complicates people honestly expressing what's going on inside of their lives. So I was indoctrinated with this. And then when I first became a pastor, uh, I was very young, very new in the ministry. And a parishioner called me up and said, my father, who lives in a town some miles away, doesn't have a pastor. And I think he's dying. Would you please go down there and visit him and counsel him? So I with great fear and trepidation, Sarah, I got in the car and drove all the way to the hospital wondering what I was going to do <laughs> when I got in to see this poor dying man. Not talk about God, obviously. Not talk about God, yes. And I, So you're dying. How do you feel about that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> the absurdity wow. of the training I got was just re uh, too much. And luckily for me, I'm a child of a pastor and I grew up in a parsonage. And I had a model of what being a pastor was in situations like that. And by the time I'd walked into the man's room, I'd overcome my indoctrination and all the inhibitions it had put on me. And I said, I'm here to tell you about the love of God in Christ and to help you realize that even in this terrible trial that you're going through, nothing can separate you from the love of God and Christ, would you like to pray? And so we prayed wow. together. And then for me, that broke the dam. And I so often used to say in those days, becoming a pastor for me meant unlearning all that I'd been taught in practical theology. Hmm. Well, it's tragic that, that that is where practical theology had gotten to by that point in time. Yeah, it was. Now, I, I'm I'm sure it's better today, but maybe, maybe. I'm not. I don't know. Well, I suppose I can imagine it was, uh, as so often these things are, a reaction against, you know, uh, over-spiritualizing over everything, refusing to let people 
talk through their feelings, even ugly ones. You know, I can I can see where it might have come from. I know just uh, uh, when I was in CPE, the one time the whole summer that I thought I did something valuable, it was similar. I was in a, a dying woman's room. Of course, I didn't you know know her at all, um, and she was clearly burdened with religious stuff. <laughs> and so I, you know, I talked to her for quite a while to sort it out. And, and then I prayed with her for a really long time. And it seemed to be genuinely cathartic um, and important. And then in my, my CPE report, all I did was report my very long prayer and I got reprimanded because what was interesting was the, uh, the what she said part um, of the conversation and not what I said. It was so that the, clearly what was communicated to me is you have nothing of value you to say all that matters is what the other person says and i just thought that can't be right <laughs> like the, what is the point seriously of being a pastor if you're not ever allowed to say anything and especially this woman so obviously needed religious words and not psychological words about her situation right. and of course what is the ministry if you have no gospel if you're tongue-tied if you cannot be a mouthpiece of the gospel and that's what i find these general notions of leadership from the culture often end up muzzling us as gospel speakers. I think in our current times, the secular model that's come into the church is corporate leadership or corporate management models or perhaps uh, community organizing. I'm sure there's all sorts of sociological insights that, and that can be gleaned from this as there can be psychological insights gleaned from studying uh, in a counseling program. Uh, but these are all tools in service of the pastor's primary calling, which is to lead or shepherd a congregation of Christ's people by being a mouthpiece of the gospel. All right. Well, why don't you unpack that for us in, in more detail, set against the, you know, the CEO and the other models we've talked about as, as not being primarily the pastoral call. Well, let's go with the biblical model. The term pastor is Latin for shepherd. And this is the root metaphor uh, that's uh, common in the church to call our leaders pastors on the metaphor that they are the shepherd of the flock. So what does the metaphor mean? It indicates a protective and unifying role within the community. That's what a shepherd does. It protects against danger. And in that protection, it also is a unifying force. It, it unites people around word and sacrament. Jesus's use of the metaphor also requires us to distinguish between true shepherds, faithful shepherds, and faithless hirelings. This is awkward and difficult, but in fact, the need to make this distinction is urgent. Nothing shows this urgency more acutely today than the crisis precipitated by clergy sexual abuse especially of minors. Uh, I submit that this abuse uh, and the cover-up of it by church authorities up until recent times reflects a vocational identity crisis within the clergy. They no longer know what they're supposed to be doing and consequently, as I said earlier, caught up in a crossfire of conflicting expectations, exhausted by being uh, people pleasers that can never please enough, they act out in these extremely destructive ways, not only to the minors, but to themselves and to the congregations. 
One of the most depressing experiences I had many years ago was when I was uh, in New York City when I was an interim pastor for a year and in the course of that ministry discovered how my predecessor had been sleeping with a teenage girl for a number Ugh. of years. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was absolutely disgusting. And of course, he left the ministry when his, when his pastoral role there exploded. But it, it never had been revealed why it had exploded. And when I finally called up the bishop and said, this is, I think, what happened. In those days, the bishop said to me, well, he's left our, us. He's no longer under our supervision. There's nothing we can do about it. I think oh. today I would have called the police. But anyway, yeah. that's, that's oh. just, you know, just if we don't know how to say who was a true and faithful shepherd of the flock and say how it is that there can be faithless hirelings who don't do terrible damage to the to others, especially powerless others, to themselves and then to the community of faith. No wonder we're in such trouble and the church as an institution is losing such credibility in the public eye. Yeah, wow. Well, I mean, I think it has to be more than just um, an unclear job description that leads people towards such hideous uh, evils and sins against people under their care. But I think that does at least point out that whether you like it or not, pastors have power. They have authority. Um, maybe not the kind that they want, <laughs> you know, to uh, speak truth to power or change the culture for the better or, you know, make the critical witness to the corporation or endemic racism or something. But certainly within the congregation and among faithful people, pastors have power, you know, not just authority to speak, but actual power. And I think that that is something that absolutely has to be reckoned with honestly, because it means that all pastors are susceptible to the temptations of power. They have to keep an eye on their own own souls. And, you know, they need to watch each other, not in a, you know, suspicious and paranoid way, but the temptations are huge. I would just like to put in a three big cheers for the double standard. You absolutely have to have a double standard for clergy in terms of expecting um, exceptional behavior. And I really mean that you have to be exceptionally well behaved if you are going to be a pastor because you have power and therefore your capacity to damage is so much greater than your average Joe Schmo Christian who might be a jerk and do lots of stupid things, but doesn't have that kind of power in the community. Boy, beautifully said. And let's, let's at the conclusion today, let's come back to this issue of the proper power of the pastor, uh, because I think it's really important. And as we're getting to that, let's kind of build a case theologically, step by step, for what the job of a pastor is then with these clarifications that we've uh, come up with. Sure. I'd like that, especially because, like, as you point out, if the job of a pastor is to take care of the flock and, use, you know, be a caregiver, but we've just talked about the dangers of compassion fatigue and being a primary caregiver, I think it helps to, like, as we go, let's unpack what the right kind of care for a congregation actually is. And the right use of power will become clear in the process. Right, right. Okay, good. good, good. Let's, let's, let's begin. A Christian theology of pastoral ministry begins with the observation that pastors are lay people too. That's one way of putting the Reformation teaching of the priesthood of all believers. 
Pastors are lay people too. Now the word lay comes from the Greek laos, which is the term used in the Septuagint in the New Testament Greek for the people of God. Laos means the people, the people of God. And so all baptized Christians are lay people. They are made so by their baptism into Christ. And as baptized people within the community of the baptized into Christ, each and every one of the people has a ministry from the gospel word and sacraments to the world, where stations in life become vocations of those who are in Christ to care for the neighbor and loving service. Here the ordinary virtues of civic life apply to all, what the Reformation called civil righteousness. Civil righteousness is that basic distinction between honest and criminal behavior, principled and unethical behavior. And such civil righteousness is the minimal core expectation that pastors, as lay people too, are held up to. Being a pastor is no license to run cross, run red lights, to speed on the highway, to drink after... To abuse minors. Yeah, right, abuse minors, anything else. Cheat on your taxes, whatever, right? All the mm. people of God are called to moral virtue in the temporal sense of civil righteousness. And we also have the vocational expectations of uh, diligence, intelligence, creativity, all the other kinds of ideas that we associate with vocational excellence. And let me just ask you a, a quick question there. You know, you, you talked about how all lay people have a calling out into the world. This is like Bonhoeffer's idea of, of uh, true secularity, which is loving the world profoundly because it's, it's God's world, perhaps in a way that um, secular people can't love it. But what I see is a lot of pastors who I think actually wanted to have vocations to the world and not to the church. And then the church became the place from which they carried out their ministry to the world. And I don't mean that at all to denigrate the desire to serve in the world. That is a fantastic thing to do. And we need the vast majority of human beings to be doing that. I just feel, I think I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the pastoral office for, and I think that's how it often gets recruited to other causes, however worthy in their own right, that are not finally the primary vocation of the church. What do you think about that? I think, I think you're right. I think there is a lot of confusion about what the calling of a pastor is and how it is distinct, not separated from, but distinct from the baptismal calling of all Christian people to be at work vocationally serving the neighbor in need in the world through moral excellence and vocational excellence. And so what is it that distinguishes the pastoral ministry from the general calling the priesthood of all believers, being a little Christ to the neighbor in any and all circumstances in the world? Well, I think the distinction is basically this. Within the community of faith, some must be set aside. Now, you can pick your vocabulary here, consecrated, sanctified, ordained. But basically, the idea is some from within the community of faith 
must be set aside by the community of faith to serve word and sacrament, and by the service of word and sacrament, serve the building up of the community of faith. That's what a pastor is. A pastor is one whose service is to word and sacrament, seeing that the gospel word and its fruits and repentance and faith get delivered concretely to this community of faith, and that it might be nurtured, developed, built up, strengthened, admonished, persevered in this fashion. So so maybe to clarify then, so a pastor on his or her, you know, off hours downtime can certainly do like community service organizing or uh, bearing witness to this or that cause or whatever. Those are all fine things to do. But specifically in the vocation of being a pastor, the way the pastor serves the world is by attending to the flock's spiritual upbuilding so that they can then go out and do all the things that they are far better qualified to as engineers and teachers and nurses and garbage collectors and, and, and all of those things that they do. Yeah. Let's use my earlier uh, example. What we do nowadays, much better than when I was in seminary, is when people are psychologically troubled, we know how to refer them to good counselors <laughs> rather than pastors trying to be amateurish counselors and then not delivering the spiritual goods that that people actually need from them as opposed to from the therapy they need from somebody well-trained in psychological counseling. So I would I would want to then really stress the point that especially to pastors who I think are made to feel guilty that they're not like out on the front lines doing truly valuable stuff because they're not and then they're not serving the world. They're only attending to the church that really this is how you serve the world, which is by building up the lay people who have the vast raft of gifts. But I would also say on the critical side of that, which is don't take away from the lay people they're calling by thinking that you're better at it because you're a pastor. I think I've seen a lot of pastoral ministries that try to steal the thunder of the people who actually are good at social work or, I don't know, political lobbying or um, environmental decision making because they they want to be involved in all of it. But that is actually, I think, you know, like I said, stealing the true vocation of the lady and trying to absorb the uh, the glory for oneself. The pastor's job is really directed towards the spiritual upbuilding of the flock, not taking their jobs away from them. Yeah, and I think the pastor can also be a unifier in that respect. Rather than doing politics for the lay people, the pastor can enable the people in a particular congregation to deliberate together about matters of public interest. Then it's the lay people who are doing politics in the democratic fashion. And the pastor in the church creates a climate of trust and respect in which the diverse opinions, judgments, interests that beset political life uh, can, can be at best even reconciled in the process of a deliberation sponsored by the church as a community of trust. Man, you are one crazy optimist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, it's a whole lot better than a pastor using the pulpit to preach their own strong political opinions and then polarize the congregation until the pastor is preaching only to a choir of yes men and women 
that is something that happens in congregations all the time in America today, both on the left and on the right. And I think it's a real uh, failure of Christian vision and understanding of the job of a congregation. We'll get to that next week, I think. I think what pastors need to do is challenge their lay people. If you're a Democrat, make the Democratic Party the best Democratic Party it can be. If you are a Republican, make the Republican Party the best Republican Party it can be. Heck, if you are a communist, make the Communist Party the best party it can possibly be, (laughs) but not predetermined for them which party they're going to belong to that is therefore the party of truth and righteousness. Yeah, this is a kind of clericalism, isn't it? It really is a kind of clericalism when pastors think that they have competence and authority to pontificate on such questions rather than themselves being lay people. That is to say, they have their own calling to be political citizens. But once once they enter that voc- station in life, they uh, participate as a baptized Christian, not with the authority of the pastor and the office of word and sacrament. Yeah. And on the flip side, I think the pastor needs to protect the lay people from turning the congregation into their platform as well, that it really has to be a place for the faithful, regardless of their... Po- they they are certainly welcome to have their political convictions, but not to make the church into the locus of their campaigning for their convictions. That That's is right. a place where a pastor has to play a protective role. That's right. Very good. Well said. So all of this, we're talking here about setting aside some in the community of faith, by the community of faith, to serve the word and sacrament. That's what we mean by ordination. We don't need to go into all the mechanics of that, because the fundamental point uh, is that what happens in ordination is that pastors make particular vows of theological fidelity at their ordination. Now, all baptized Christians, in principle, have made similar vows in our denomination, in our tradition, Lutheran tradition, that occurs in confirmation or affirmation of baptism. Promises are made uh, to be faithful in particular ways. The difference is that the stations in life occupied by lay people do not depend on Christian covenantal vows even though their vocational understanding of their work in these stations of life does depend on their Christian self-understanding and the vows they've made in Christ to be servants to neighbors as Christ has been a servant to me. That's different from a pastor. A pastor's station within the community of faith explicitly turns on fidelity to the vows of ordination. Have you been faithful to the vows of ordination? That is what your genuine status, or to use the term we were using earlier, power depends on. I remember an anecdote about this from my father, who was a pastor. As often happens, there was some behind-the-scenes politicking for a congregation in another town to try to, as it were, steal him away from his calling and bring him to their congregation. And uh, he, of course, found the attention flattering, as anybody would, but as the more he listened to these people, the more 
the more uh, upset and nervous he became. And he finally said to me, how could I ever have any certainty that this is the calling of God if I cooperate with this political, with this politicking of a, of a call to a new congregation? I'd never have any certainty. And because I'd never have any certainty of divine calling, I'd never have my genuine power, my genuine authority. I would never be able to say, thus says the Lord. Mm. Wow. So that's that's really interesting to to point out that nearly every job on the planet requires purely competence, <laughs> and sometimes not even that. But the pastoral job, I mean, just to use the very ordinary term for it, it's not just a matter of confidence. It is a matter of taking a vow and being faithful to it. There are only a very few jobs that have that level of authority. Like, I don't know, I suppose, you know, the president takes a vow on inauguration, and um, I suppose uh, doctors not for each individual job, but they have the Hippocratic Oath and so forth. But there is a weightiness to the job of pastor in this terms of vow and fidelity that is beyond that of an ordinary vocation or profession. And then, as your husband said, when the pastor is under assault, which can happen in a number of ways, maybe we'll talk about alligators in the congregation in a little bit. But, (laughs) you know, assault, trial, testing, temptation, difficulty, challenge, all of these things can assail the pastor. And if all you've got to go on is your politicking with some faction in the congregation in order to keep your status up, if that's all you've got, you're going to get chewed up and spit out. And you might anyway. You might anyway. But your true source of authority uh, is your fidelity to your vow and the power uh, of the word of God to which you have vowed yourself, avowed yourself at your ordination and installation. Yeah, and if I would say to pastors, and I've seen this happen to some dear pastor friends who were um, absolutely brilliant at their callings, but the devil uh, got hold of some people to take them out, and you know it was devastating. But I think what sustained them in it was their own sense of fidelity to their calling that they could not do otherwise, and it hurt like hell, and it was a horrible thing to go through. But that that at the end of the day is sustaining. You say, but I am vowed to being a preacher of the gospel, and I could not compromise that. Yeah, and I'm sure you've had those experiences in your pastoral ministry, as I have also. There are, just in the dynamics of church life in the United States of America, where you always have, it seems you often have factions of people who think they own the church, and the pastor is their hired hand. And then they expect yeah. the pastor to uh, march to the beat of their drums. And then if you're not cooperating, boy, you can get ambushed awfully quick. Those, that's just, and I wish, you know, that young pastors entering the ministry could be made aware of that and be mentored in such a way that they don't fall apart when that kind of assault takes place, as it surely will. At some point. Yeah, we don't. We I don't think we're going to spend a whole lot of time on how people end up becoming pastors. But I, I certainly have seen the way that when you're a, you're on the ordination track, you're like a darling and the all star, and you know. And then as soon as you cross that line, man, you're just left to swim in the middle of the ocean with the sharks all around, and yeah, right. uh, you know, you 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 mess up and you're out. 
uh, it's it's pretty brutal. So I don't mean to totally contradict myself here, but on the flip side of warning pastors about the power that they have and therefore they have to behave themselves, I would also say at the same time, if you are, in fact, a faithful pastor, then you are the pastor and you do have to exercise your authority and not be a people pleaser, as uh, St. Paul criticizes, but to be a God pleaser only. And, you know, that's hard. You need to do difficult work of discernment and check it against your own, you know, egotism or insecurity or harshness. You know, there's all sorts of ways the authority can go wrong. But after all, you are called to be a pastor in order to have that authority. And you have to exercise it because if you don't, someone else surely will and someone even less qualified than you are to do it. Very good. That's that's very good. Now, if that's what the service is, service to word and sacrament, if that's the pastoral vocation, what's missing today? What's what's not happening uh, that is really detrimental uh, to the pastor's self-understanding and the pastor's uh, effective ministry as a custodian of the mysteries of God for the building up of the people of God? What's missing? I would answer the question in one word, teaching. One of the most important, but also today lacking things that a pastor does for the community of faith is teach. Christianity does not occur to anyone naturally. (laughs) It must be learned. It must be, if I can use the naughty word, it must be indoctrinated. The model here is in the book of Deuteronomy, which Luther uh, took up in writing his catechisms. Teaching, you know, a lot of my good friends in Lutheran theology have adopted the motto that theology is for proclamation. Um, Rightly understood, I agree with that. Um, But I fear that it often overlooks the context of the Christian congregation, which pastors are called to pastor by serving word and sacrament. Proclamation in the context of congregational life is preaching to the baptized within the community of faith. Every sermon does not need to be a revival or an altar call. <laughs> I don't know. I think a, a, a revival would be a step in the right direction for most Lutheran preachers, but that's my cynical take on what usually happens. Yeah, I'm being yeah, I'm being a little bit facetious myself. I'm talking to my friends who have this mantra: theology is for proclamation. Mm. Well, yes, proclamation in the New Testament is public proclamation the kerygma that is being announced to the non-believing world. But we're talking here about pastoral preaching within the community of faith. Now, of course, we want the thrilling sound of the gospel to sound in every sermon, but that happens by recalling the baptized to the marvel of their baptism uh, so that their whole Christian life is a perpetual return so the gracious act of God's incorporation in, in holy baptism. 
So you mean something like always saying like, God loves you, God loves you, and God forgives your sins, but never explaining the history of God's love as actually shown in scripture, the meaning of God's love in the cross, the uh, means by which forgiveness of sins takes place both in Jesus' death and resurrection and in your own baptism and your ongoing practice of confession. Like, that's what you mean. It's just announcing the fact about God, but not giving any of its contact, explanation, apologetic issues as they arise in the culture, that kind of stuff. I know you and I have this dispute about whether Heinrich Heine said this or Voltaire, <laughs> uh, you know, but it's almost it's almost maudlin in our circles. Of course, God forgives sins. That's his job. Of course, right. God is love. What else could he be? You know, right. th- there's no news here. This is this is uh, the whole drama of the God of love in his wrath against what is against love, nevertheless finding the way through the cross and resurrection of Christ to have mercy upon real, not imaginary sinners, that drama rarely gets uh, enunciated in Christian preaching. And for the drama to be enunciated, it also has to be coached and taught. What's missing sorely today and has been since the 1960s is ongoing pastoral catechesis, Christian Torah, instruction in the core practices of Christianity. Here I want to quote the Norwegian theologian Jan Olav Henriksen. What are those core practices? They're practices of orientation. How do I have a map through life? And that's the function of the commandments of God. Uh, the double love commandment, to love God above all and love my neighbor as myself, that teaching of Torah, of the law of God, the instruction of God, gives us our basic orientation. That's why Martin Luther could consider the first commandment the foundation of all Christian doctrine. And then the second core Christian practice is transformation that we are not left as we are unchanged, but the practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper are working a perpetual revolution on our personal selves that stretches from baptism day to resurrection day. And that these practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper through the ministry of pastoral preaching in the context of congregational life constantly require a theological legitimation. Why do we do this rather than that? Why do we use bread and wine rather than pizza and Coca-Cola in the Lord's Supper? (laughs) Why do we baptize with water rather than Kool-Aid? You know, I can go on and on with silly examples, but in the contemporary church, there's an awful lot of silliness that comes from the lack of catechesis, the lack of teaching. Pastors need to learn to teach again. Yeah, you know, we often have this joke about preaching to the choir, but actually the choir really needs to hear it. (laughs) I discovered in my first call about a dozen years ago that you are not preaching to a band of highly advanced and spiritual Christians, that in fact, your congregation is your first mission field. The advantage you have is that they're already there. So like you have literal access to them between your voice and their ears. The downside is that they often think that they're already Christians in a, you know, meaningful, discipled kind 
kind of way and therefore somewhat resistant to anything you have to say. But to imagine that there is... Yeah, I, I think there's a um, mistake in too sharply separating the instruction for the congregation and the instruction for the unbelieving world. I think there is a much uh, blurrier distinction between the two than is often the ca- often assumed to be. Right, but in principle in the congregation, you can say we are gathered together as the baptized. And you cannot say that in a public transcript. Yeah, I don't mean like the identity of the people, but I'm specifically speaking to the catechesis that you were talking about. I just think you can never assume that even your congregation is well catechized. But look, even if they are fairly well catechized, people like hearing what they already know. I remember when I first started public speaking, like thinking that I could never, ever repeat myself from one talk to the next, even if I was, you know, speaking to different groups of people. But then I gradually realized that people don't want to hear just brand new things. Actually, they really want to hear the same thing over and over again. And the more times you hear it, the more you internalize it, you grasp it, you have actually new insights hearing the same thing that you heard before. So there's no need to get bored and think, well, I've already told them about the Trinity. What can I say this Sunday? Like, tell them again. (laughs) They still need to know. (laughs) You know, the essence of liturgy is repetition uh, until the the pedagogy of liturgy uh, internalizes itself into heart and mind. And I think pastoral preaching is right along the same lines. It's a liturgical preaching. It's not being out uh, uh, in the in the public square. Uh, we'll get to evangelism in a minute. But anyway, that's the fundamental point I wanted to make. What's lacking in today's pastoral leadership? Teaching. And what's needed for pastors to teach, time to read, to think, to study? The Bible, Scripture, the Confessions, and good theology. Pastors need to polish their vocational skills in the very discipline in which they are vocationally expert, which is theology. Yeah. And that means, again, we'll get to this next week, but congregations not only need to make room for their pastors to study, they need to insist that their pastors study. They need to be proud of their pastors studying. And that doesn't mean sending pastors off to learn how to be a secular this or a secular that. That leads to the next point I think we want to talk about. In our late capitalist societies, ubiquitous are models of economic efficiency according to a cost-benefit analysis. And these models are in the heads of pastors and congregations alike. And if we uncritically allow these models of economic efficiency according to cost-benefit analysis, to uh, govern our thinking about the work of pastors. Evangelism becomes the recruitment of dues-paying members. Instruction in Christian belief gives way to vague notions of belonging. Critical discernment of the signs of the times gives way to going with the flow. The capacity of a community of Christians to resist the culture is eroded, and Christianity is reduced to a private religious need for rites of passage ceremonies, which can actually be satisfied far more easily and less expensively elsewhere. The failure of at critical discernment here makes a lose-lose situation in which, as I said at the beginning, pastors are torn to pieces by contrary expectations in the congregation, 
and the congregation treats pastor as a hired hand. Mic drop. <laughs> Say what? Yeah. Never mind. You don't know that expression. Um, yeah, you know, I what what strikes me about this is it's going to become so much more urgent now with the possible fallout or the no the certain fallout of um the economic stability of congregations a lot of which were already you know on the edge um but with the the pandemic and what it's done to the economy there's just it seems likely a lot of congregations are going to fold or they're not going to be able to hire pastors and i think we've already seen a kind of new openness to what's often called the tent maker ministry um after the model of of paul and priscilla and aquila which is that a pastor will have a a secular vocation and then in addition do the pastoral work which means not being a full-time pastoral call um you know i i can really see the wisdom in both ways like especially you know if you are a big and you know more wealthy church it it makes sense to have a full-time pastor doing full-time pastor things but i would think even apart from the economic thing even though that's what's going to force it on people now it's worth doing a really radical triage and saying what are the things that only the pastor can do and the pastor absolutely must do and what would happen if everything else was simply let go of and so that there would be that critical discernment of this is absolutely the pastoral task this is absolutely the christian task and therefore uh, especially i suppose if you were a tent maker or had some other source of wealth you would have a, a little bit more in your you know your personal situation the freedom not to cave in or be the the hired religious service person. Um, I think that is that is and remains really the danger of, of any um, pastor. Uh, pastor is a job, whether we like it or not. But if you are being paid for by these people, it's not surprising that they're going to expect you to deliver on command. Just like if you pay for a $100,000 college education, you expect your little darling to get, you know, no worse than an A minus. Like, how do you actually maintain that uh, necessary critical distance. I think that's very hard to work out with the money issues. Of course it is. It's very, very difficult. And we need to have frank conversations about this. Maybe we can talk about this a little bit on the next one on the job of a congregation. But uh, of course, and the pastor too knows not to bite the hand that feeds. I mean, knows, tacitly knows that and is influenced by that. You know, I've, I've mentioned this to people before. Not everybody agrees with me. But I said when I, when I took a call years ago, the first thing I said to the Congregational Council call committee and council was that when I become your pastor, I expect never to be told and never to know who gives what to the congregation because I do not want my ministry to be influenced by the flow of money one way or the other. And I think I abided by that principle all through my ministry, and it has served me well. Of course, as a pastor, I also made a point of being an exemplary giver. We've been tithers all our lives in various ways, but especially when I had pastoral calls. Because even if I don't know what anybody else gives, believe me, the folks know what the pastor gives. <laughs> That's very true. Right. That's very and, true. And, 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 so I think that, yeah, we need to have a, a richer discussion of the whole issue of financing the pastor. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't have any 
sociological data on this, and it would be interesting to know, but it seems that there has been definitely an upwardly mobile trend for the pastoral ministry, where it used to be, I think, that the pastor was generally among the poorer echelon of the congregation. Like you had, you got status, like that was a really important compensation and often a house, but you didn't have a lot of money. You often got a lot of gifts of food and stuff. I remember like when I was growing up in Delhi, you got firewood <laughs> to heat the parsonage. Right. Like that was ways that people compensated. But there was, I think, a kind of um, moral authority that went with not being materially wealthy. So you had the stat, like, again, the status that went with your vows of fidelity to your holy office, but not wealth. And it seems like there has been a definite trend to make sure that the pastor is well paid, more secure. And you can see there are good sides to that. But what it also does is it kind of levels out the pastor and takes away that moral authority that comes with for trading, you know, the the vow for the material wealth. And um, I can't help but think that that has had a a depressive effect on what it means to actually be that critically discerning pastoral presence in the congregation. It's certainly, you're certainly right about that. The uh, upward mobility aspirations of the beginning with my generation onward in the ministry has certainly had that effect, I think, in many ways. It's a difficult problem because I also grew up observing my father's generation in which the attitude of some congregations was we're going to keep him poor and therefore humble. You know, mm. that uh, really That's evil, ugly too. Ugly, very ugly. And how many pastors uh, went into old age without any retirement or even Social Security? It was really awful. Right. And now you have to have seven years of higher education and go into unbelievable debt. So they're they're keeping you poor at the near end now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a boy. That's a topic to be talked about again in the future. But let's let's finish up this. I have one more thing I'd like to talk about on the job of a pastor, and that is the absolute collapse culturally of Christendom assumptions. And by this, I mean the assumption that we're all vaguely Christian that the culture uh, supports the church and its ministry. That's the Christendom assumptions. And brothers and sisters, this has collapsed. It has disappeared. There are still some legal accoutrements in the tax code that reflect this, but fundamentally, culturally, pastors are no longer revered and treated as godly people automatically. I remember when I wore my clergy collar in New York City as a young pastor, I still got deference, respect. I got addressed as father or reverend, and, <laughs> uh, and people were nice to me. Poor, crazy people you know, would come up to me and start explaining how Rockefeller was uh, planning to be assassinated, assassinate the president or something like that. Pa- <laughs> pastors had this kind of assured cultural role. But I understand today wearing a a pastoral collar in some places is kind of like making yourself an open target. So it's, it's the culture has changed rather dramatically. And if all you're working with is the idea that the church, the congregation is there, it's always been there, it always will be there, and you're just going in to do a maintenance ministry and keep the clock wound up so it continues to tick. 
you know, I think that's an assumption that's increasingly gone. And with this dramatic change, pastors are required, and this is another side of that ministry of teaching. Uh, you might call this kind of ad hoc apologetics. They also must learn to become excellent interlocutors in public with those of no faith, little faith, or even hostility to faith. They are always representing the gospel whether they like it or not. The collar they wear around their neck is a sign of the yoke of Jesus Christ, and you can't erase it. This is who you are. You are a mouthpiece of the gospel. And this means that in public life, in the community, the larger community in which congregational life is located, this has to become one of the practical skills of ministry, by which I mean serving the gospel word publicly in such a way that its transformative intention becomes intelligible and attractive to those without any church background. The pastor as evangelist. Of course, this is not only pastor's task, but the pastor should be exemplary and thus enable his community of the people of God to become themselves evangelists in this sense. Not proselytizers, not revival preachers, but winsome and engaging gospel speakers who can effectively invite new people to repentance and faith. So I think that's one of the big desiderata of pastoral ministry for the future. Well, I think you're right, and that is absolutely a shot and arrow through my heart because this is definitely where I'm I'm weakest. I'm good at talking to the in flock, but not to the out flock at all. Dad, I remember when I um <laughs> when I started my first call way back when, um like literally in the first week, I remember having this thought like okay, now I'm a pastor, I need to start evangelizing. And then having the sudden crushing realization that I had no idea how to do it, that I had never done it in my life. Part of it is because I grew up a very much in a Christendom world where there were very few people who were not accounted for church-wise. <laughs> but I just, I was completely bewildered. And I remember with great shame, my first efforts were, I mean, they weren't intentionally proselytizing, but they were more like a bait and switch where I would be at some function and, you know, like talk like a normal human being to people and then like bring out my card and push it on them and say, by the way, I'm a pastor. Why don't you come to church sometime? And like the look of horror in people's eyes. And I like I remember realizing what I did there was really wrong. Like that was that was pretending I was human when in fact I was a pastor, <laughs> you know, in, in the worst possible way. Um so I think that is a, a skill that has, I, I think it used to be a much bigger part of a Lutheran ministerial training than it is now. But there are people I know who are brilliant, like our, our friend Natalie in Pittsburgh. Hi, Natalie, if you're listening. She is one of the most gifted evangelists I know. She will just talk to anyone and people engage her and she'll go, you know, right for the, the really hard stuff and um, brings all kinds of people into the church and baptizes them. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, there's obviously some native gift there, but there obviously are also skills that can be developed. And, you know, now that I'm a so-called missionary in Japan, they're ones that I desperately need to acquire <laughs> myself. Speaking the language would probably help. <laughs> yes, that comes with time. But that, that task of learning, learning cultural languages uh, is true, even if you're not literally talking about learning a foreign language. Yeah, that's true.
I guess where it kind of all comes down for me, Dad, you know, um, evangelism, uh, leading by example with evangelism or with teaching or all the other things you've talked about, the kind of shorthand in my mind for a pastor is that a pastor has to actually be a spiritual leader. I use the word spiritual advisedly because it often means wonky stuff with like candles and ghosts. But but I mean, like, literally, like, we're not talking about just ordinary horizontal existence. We are really talking about a living relationship with the living God. And so I think the pastor has to lead and model the spiritual reality that Christianity is dealing with, but without being the spiritual person for the congregation. And I think it's uh, always a a temptation of congregations to delegate out the spiritual work to the pastor, like the way you see lay people continually refusing to pray in public because, well, that's the pastor's job. I'm not good at that. I can't do it. Um, Or, you know, well, the pastor knows this stuff. I don't need to know it, that kind of stuff. And I think the pastor needs to lead by example, but always be pushing it back to the people and never doing for them what they can do for themselves when it's the crisis you know when the terrible thing happens then for you know by all means get in there and do what they can't do for themselves but in the ordinary flow of things i think the pastor needs to be always saying you can do this you also have a relationship with god you are baptized you are an evangelist you are a witness you can do it yes and that that's what i meant earlier by teaching that's what teaching does it enlightens, it educates, it instructs, and it empowers. Knowledge is power, and you empower people by teaching them. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground there. Any final thoughts before we wrap this one up? Well, I think we're going to have to think about the job of a congregation uh, in a number of different dimensions from this discussion, and I'm particularly thinking that we ought to spend some time now on congregational finances. Oh, joy. Okay, well, folks, (laughs) next time on the show, we'll be talking about the job of the congregation and how to keep it afloat. Well, I'll tell you what, just take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians 7, chapter 7 through 10 in preparation for that discussion. Folks, you can do that out there as well. Okay. Okay, but you, you ruined my outro. We're supposed to end with my saying next time on the show. Next time on the show, the job of a congregation. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.